Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Hey, Jim, and hey, everybody listening. I recently wrapped up a class in the Institute um, that I was teaching. That, that's Yeah, the Mech Institute it, um, is kind of a discipleship ministry here at Mech. But anyways, I just wrapped up a class talking about the Old Testament law. And at first lesson, I get it. Like, that sounds really boring. But I think everybody in the class found that it was anything but that. It's actually really interesting. In fact, there's so much about the Mosaic Law that still influences our judicial system, the way we think about justice, including the topic of today's conversation, which is capital punishment. Now, just a cursory glance at the civil laws in Exodus and Leviticus and, and, num- and I'm sorry, and Deuteronomy. They show that the death penalty is mandated, a mandated punishment for quite a number of offenses. But Christians have struggled, I mean, historically and especially now, to try to understand whether that punishment is still best or really even right. And as I told you when I pitched the idea to you, I'm very happy now to move off the hot seat for this conversation so that I can put you on it. So how does that feel? <laughs> About the way it does every week. Great. <laughs> Well, something that I had thought of was that, you know, laws, just by their very nature, they do reflect something about society. In fact, they reflect what is important to a community or to the people who instituted the law. So, you know, for example, the fact that we have fines for littering suggests that, theoretically at least, we care about the environment, for example. And I would say the consequences that we put into place for breaking different laws also reflects what's important to us. We don't have the same consequence for littering that we do for, I don't know, identity theft. So in that line of thinking, what are we to understand about God by the fact that he would mandate the death penalty in some cases? Well, I think several things come to mind uh, that we should understand about God because of that. First, that God is God. I mean, let's start there. I mean, he can do anything he wants. Um, we are his creation, and the taking of life that he created is, is his right. Uh, that's one of the reasons murder is wrong. Human life is not ours to take. Only God has that right. Second, it reminds us that God is holy. Uh, when God uh, exercised what we would call capital punishment, it was always over sin. You know, we, we have a tendency to forget or to tone down, I think, the holiness of God. I mean, just theologically, but it's arguably his, his, central, his central attribute. If you, have, uh, if you know anything about the Hebrew language, um, for example, you know that the emphasis on uh, or importance of something was often written out through repetition. So if you read that someone came across a big pit, you know, in an English translation, you were to go to the original Hebrew, it wouldn't say big pit, it would say pit pit. <laughs> you know, it, was a, it was a heck of a pit. Um, and you never read anywhere in scripture that God is love, 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 or mercy, mercy, mercy. Uh, But you do find the angels surrounding God in Isaiah's uh, encounter with God in the temple that's captured in Isaiah 6, uh, saying, holy, holy, holy. And uh, most of us know that holiness has to do with um, being without sin, being without blame, being pure, being being perfect. 
Um, but there's more to it than that. The word itself literally means that which is set apart, that which is separate, that which is wholly other, completely distinct. It's the opposite of our darkness and the opposite of our failure. It's the opposite of our sin. It's the ultimate standard. It's the ultimate benchmark. It's the one true litmus test of who we are. It's everything sin isn't. Um, and so it's not something that God pulls off. It's intrinsic to his nature. It's something that God is. He is holy, which means sin of any and all kinds is repugnant to him, something he cannot stand, something he cannot tolerate. He must either destroy it or separate himself from it. Uh, and every sin, as a result, is worthy of capital punishment. Every sin. Um, and which reminds us that if we think God is safe, if, if we think God is like a little cuddle toy that we don't have to take seriously, or some senile grandfather up in the sky, we need to think again. Uh, he's not safe. As C.S. Lewis once famously pointed out, uh, he's good, but he's not safe. Uh, he's, he's like fire. And the fire that warms can also be the fire that burns. So capital punishment from the hand of God reminds us of God's rights, of God's holiness, and I would say finally of God's image. Uh, human life is sacred because we're made in the image of God. Uh, and the most common reason for capital punishment was that someone committed murder. They took the life of someone made in the image of God. And I think that in the case of like homicidal murder, it makes a little bit more sense to us, you know, why that might be the consequence. And yet it doesn't stop there, right? Like in the Old Testament, God calls for the death penalty of not observing the Sabbath or for homosexuality or adultery or being a false prophet and so on. And so I think something that we're wrestling with is that in our minds, the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime. I know you just talked about how all sin could be worthy of the death penalty, but can you just help us to understand this a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Let me give you the short answer and then let's unpack it a bit. The short answer is that um, there are a lot of laws and, and with punishments, specifically in the Old Testament, for a simple reason. Uh, God was training up a people. Uh, he was developing a new community, uh, a new nation that had come from a very pagan and immoral background, which meant the need for a lot of rules and a lot of specificity and, and the discipline needed to enforce those rules. It's just like a parent raising a, a two-year-old. Um, you know, when you have a two-year-old, you have a million rules because they don't know anything and they'll touch anything and they'll climb anything and they'll eat anything and they'll stick a fork into anything. Um, they'll run out in front of anything. So you have to say no a million times a day and then back it up by maybe popping them on the hand or putting them in timeout so that it, so you know, so much so that it almost feels like, like, their second home. The reason is simple. A two-year-old is like a blank slate and they don't have a real keen sense of right from wrong and good from bad and safe from harmful. And not only that, they aren't mature enough to simply have the parents know be no or don't be don't. Uh, you have to draw a thousand lines uh, that you don't have to later on and you have to enforce it a thousand times a day in ways that you don't have to later on as they get older. That's the nature of raising a two-year-old. Well, that was the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, they were two-year-olds. Uh, they had never been a people. They had never been a community. They had never been a nation. 
um, much less followers of the living God uh, of the universe before in their life. Uh, now, that raises the question, though, why so severe? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, because what God doled out wasn't just pops on the hand. Um, so capital punishment, why capital punishment for seemingly insignificant things? Well, first, in, in, in the vast majority of cases, the punishment was not capital punishment. Mm-hmm. In fact, a careful study of the Bible in the Old Testament, you can count only 16 or so times in the Old Testament where that even popped up or that was even applicable or called for. Second, the issues related to those cases where capital punishment was involved weren't so insignificant. We have to be careful when we read it. They weren't that insignificant. Go back to parenting. You don't punish for childish irresponsibility. What you punish for is willful disobedience. But all of you who are listening, who are parents, know that the degree of punishment also needs to fit the crime. And the more the willful disobedience carries damaging repercussions for that child of the family, the more you need to make sure the punishment stands out and sticks. Like, oh my gosh, you could have been killed. <laughs> you know, this is serious. And I got to make sure this one gets home to you. But it's not just when it's damaging for the child. It's also when it's damaging for the other children in the family. Same with the people of Israel. Deep communal aspect. Capital punishment in the Old Testament was tied to cases that were uniquely damaging to the community as a whole if they had been allowed to go unpunished in a way that didn't stand out for generations. Uh, The harm those acts held for the new nation of Israel, the community that God was establishing, the values and vision that was being put in place were just off the chart significant. And, and, And if you still think the punishment didn't match the crime, we'll play it out this way. I would ask, do you believe that there is ever a situation where punishment is is called for? And most people would say, well, of course. I say, okay, do you believe that God, if he exists as the ultimate standard of right and wrong and the judge of the universe, has the right for to punish things that deserve punishment? Most people, again, would say, well, yes. So when he does, what's the problem? What's the problem? See, see, I think this is the real rub. We all want to sit in judgment over God, mm-hmm. in judgment over not only what he says is right and wrong, but what he does in the name of justice. Now, let's go ahead and chase one last dynamic to get everything out of the way, because it's relevant to the question of capital punishment today. If those punishments, including capital punishment, are in the Old Testament for those 16 offenses, why aren't we doing all 16 now? Right. That's what some people will say. And and they'll say, look, if you're going to believe the Bible, you've got to follow all of that numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus stuff. So what about those punishments now? Uh, How does that fit into, say, the Jesus of the New Testament and how we're living here in in this era? Because while there were some swift reactions from God in the New Testament with the start of the early church, just like there were with the start of the people of Israel, I mean, there were. I mean, you, you had some parallels. There were some Early church swiftness, setting the community. Um, Ananias and Sapphira come to mind. Right. Just like there was uh, in, the, in the Old Testament. There was a change. There was a change. Um, the Old Testament was a record of God's covenants, God's agreements with people before the time of Christ. As time went on, the, the, the covenants got, gave more and, and more of God's plan 
more and more of God's revelation, building toward the supreme revelation of God's plan, um, which was Jesus. The Old Testament said that would be the coming of the Messiah, God himself to save the world. Uh, that brings us to the New Testament. The New Testament is the new agreement that God made with men and women about how to be in a relationship with God after the coming of Christ. But it didn't replace the old covenants. It fulfilled them. And this is very key. Because God's agreements with people uh, and the nation of Israel in the Old Testament found their fulfillment in the new covenants brought by Jesus. Because that's what the Older Testament contained. Uh, pointers, signs of what was to come. All along, God's intention was to bring forth the Savior of the world in the person of Jesus. In fact, the purpose of the Old Covenant, or what is often called the law, was to pre prepare the people for the coming, complete covenant that would arrive with the Messiah. So once Jesus came, we got the New Testament. Uh, did that mean that we could just throw the Old Testament out? Well, no, it still stands. It just needs to be read in light of the fulfillment of the New Testament. So does the law of the Old Testament apply at all today? Well, yes, of course. The law provides us with a paradigm of timeless ethical, moral, and, and theological principles. But some no longer have validity because they have been completely fulfilled in Christ. Oh, here's the principle. All of the Old Testament applies to us today. None of it applies apart from its fulfillment in Christ. Okay. Let me give you an example. The famous eye for an eye idea. In the Old Testament, it famously says the punishment must match the injury, you know, life for life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, and on it goes. In the New Testament, Jesus said this, you have heard that the law says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, resist an evil person. Uh, don't resist them. I mean, you know, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek as well. So which is it? You know, is it an eye for an eye, as it says in the Old Testament, or is it turn the cheek, as it says in the New Testament? The answer is yes <laughs> to both. See, the eye for an eye passage in Deuteronomy was all about whether you could pursue uh, private vendettas and retaliate when you had been wronged. And the answer was no. That was for the judges to decide. Instead, you were to follow a principle based on an eye for an eye, meaning compensation and restitution in direct proportion to the crime. They were to match the damages inflicted and no more. You were not to have blood feuds. You were not to have private wars. Uh, so an eye for an eye was, it was a literary device to give a formula for compensation. But then Jesus gave its fulfillment. You have heard, he said, eye for an eye. And that's good. You know, we, that creates boundaries, no, no feuds, no vendettas. That's good. But I want you to go further than that. Let's go further. Don't retaliate at all. Don't harbor a spirit of resentment. If someone does you wrong, we'll meet it by doing them something right. And that kind of understanding of the fulfillment of the law, when it translated from these outer practices into a law of the heart, runs all through Jesus' teaching. Over and over and over, the letter of the law was met with the greater, more challenging spirit of the law. He would say, you have heard not to commit adultery. That's good. I'm telling you, don't, don't give in to lust in your heart. You've heard not to commit murder, and obviously that stands. But I'm telling you, don't give in to hate. 
And Jesus wanted to take the law and put it into people's hearts. So there's no contradiction whatsoever, just bringing the law to its fullest, complete, uh, fullest completion and application. And let's not forget, one other dynamic, and I think this is relevant as we're building toward talking about capital punishment, um, uh, through it all, through every law, and this is, this is not, you don't hear this talked about or taught about, it's, it's, it's like it's this little known biblical principle. But uh, with every one of those punishments, when laws were broken, mercy was possible. There was the river of mercy, because throughout the Old Testament, you had this idea of ransom. Uh, this is often overlooked, but in the Old Testament uh, book of Exodus, uh, an example is given, uh, for example, of an, of an ox goring a man uh, or a woman to death. And it's like, okay, so what, what would you do in that case? An ox bores a man or a woman to death. Uh, the ox had to be stoned. The owner, though, is not held personally liable. But if the ox had a reputation for goring and the owner knew it, had been warned about it, there'd been complaints about it, and he had failed to keep it under control, and then the ox killed someone. Not only was the ox to be stoned, but the owner as well. Hmm. However, in place of capital punishment, the owner of the ox could offer payment to compensate for the loss of life. He could redeem his own life by paying whatever the surviving family demanded. This is all in Exodus 21 if people want to chase it. So negligent homicide was as serious then as it is now. But while a capital offense, ransom could be offered. Compensation could be made. And Alexis, this is interesting. Of the 16 or so capital offenses that, are call, that, that called for the death penalty in the Old Testament, only in the case of premeditated murder was ransom not allowed. Only in the case of premeditated murder. In all the other cases, ransom could be made. So even with the strictest of punishments in the Old Testament, mercy was allowed in almost every case. And Jesus fulfilled that too. The laws didn't go anywhere. The punishments didn't go anywhere. What happened was that the ultimate ransom was paid for all by Jesus on the cross. So you see how it all hangs together. Yeah. Okay, let's fast forward from the Old Testament for a minute just to get our grounding here. Okay, Capital punishment has historically been used in almost every country in the world, but that's no longer the case. The majority of countries now have completely abolished it. The U.S. is actually one of the few that still maintains it. Any clue as to why that might be? Yeah, I think it's part of our history. It's part of our culture. Um, I, I think there's there's several reasons. I mean, I mean, first one or two that come out of my out of the shooter are, are based on the Bible. And let's be clear, the Bible has shaped American thinking and American law from the very beginning. And the Bible teaches the sanctity of human life and that murder is wrong and deserving of capital punishment. That's certainly clear throughout the Old Testament. And second, it teaches equally clear in the New Testament, the writings of Paul are particularly uh, clear here, that the governing authorities have the right to wield the sword. Uh, I don't have the right to take a life. But the state does in the name of protecting the nation. And that's considered by Paul a God-ordained authority. Uh, that's the basis for not only law and submitting to law, but something like capital punishment, as well as war. The just war theory is based on this. 
Um, another couple of reasons, though, would be um, that throughout American history, there's a sense that capital punishment operates as a deterrent. Hmm. I mean, that, 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 that's, that's been a clear idea, at least in American judicial thinking that it, and, and in criminal justice, that it, it's a deterrent to people committing murder. It's one of the reasons why it used to be conducted so publicly. You, the capital punishment would be a, a public hanging. Okay, we want everyone to see this punishment because it's meant to be a deterrent. And then I think another thing that runs through America, right or wrong, uh, but I think it, it, it certainly is a part of American culture, and you see it, is the emotional desire for vengeance or retaliation. Mm-hmm. Um, like you'll, you'll see grieving families interviewed saying, uh, when, they're, when they're put to death, I'll achieve some sense of closure or satisfaction or there'll be justice or, you know. And so uh, it, it, it seems to be something that, that bubbles to the surface, um, certainly within many in American culture, uh, that vengeance or retaliation. So those, those four combined, you know, biblical ideas, authority of government, deterrence, retaliation, they've come together in America, I think, in a way that has really kept it in place, kept capital punishment in place. Though most surveys, while they still, most people support capital punishment, the number supporting it is coming down Mm -hmm. uh, recently. I wonder, I could be wrong about this, but I wonder if it is also tied to my next question, which is that I think something that we're facing, another layer of this argument is that even if you do and you know think that capital punishment in the US is you know permissible the current capital punishment system has a lot of broken elements to it and i think for a lot of people that's their big hang up like well if it was done correctly then maybe i'd be more in support of it can you talk a little bit more about that could not agree more mm-hmm. um, there was an article in christianity today on this recently in regarding an oklahoma death penalty case and we'll link that in the show notes and it revealed much of the concern. I thought it was it was really well reported. Um, there was a man named Richard Glossop uh, who had been up for execution nine times, all due because his case was continually mishandled, just grossly mishandled. So mishandled that even the Oklahoma State Attorney General, whose office ordered the execution, asked for the execution to be stayed because it was such a mess. Mm. The case concerned a 1997 murder of a motel owner who was beaten to death with a baseball bat. Uh, Glossop did not commit the murder. Everyone agrees on that. Another man did. But in a plea deal to avoid the death penalty, the confessed murderer pointed the finger at Glossop, who worked at the motel, and said, oh, he hired me. He hired me to carry out the attack. The confessed murderer, as a result, got a life sentence one who actually killed this person with the baseball bat, and Glossop was convicted and sentenced to death. There have been so many issues with this case. This first conviction was vacated. It was a second trial that convicted him. A later review found that evidence in the case had been destroyed. It wasn't even, there was, evidence wasn't even available. The man who committed the murder and had pointed the finger at Glossop privately discussed recanting his testimony. There was an independent report found that he had also been coached by prosecutors to have his statements match the evidence. So it was, you know, uh, shaped testimony. 
there was just this growing sense of him being innocent and yet being ready for execution. And so this really created a concern for a number of, of Christ followers who were actually supportive of capital punishment. Because it wasn't like on one hand, you know, you've got the people upholding the horror of murder because people are made in the image of God. And on the other hand, you've got people who are anti-death penalty and say, no, Jesus is all about love, love, love. So it wasn't like this right-left kind of thing anymore. No, it was here about, oh my gosh, this, this may be a case that is simply being severely mishandled and we're getting ready to kill an innocent man. Uh, just a failure of the application of the system. And so the thinking goes, to your point, if we can't have a system that works, uh, in the name of the sanctity of human life, we should do away with capital punishment altogether in the name of the sanctity of human life hmm. because it could wrongfully take a human life. Right. So um, I, I, that, that's the issue at hand. Mm -hmm. Well, and then let's add one more layer on here. And I think that this is for a lot of people the hardest to overcome, which is the whole idea that, I mean, set aside the broken system for a second, is just that people – honestly, I believe in the rest of, well, not, not all people, there are those who believe in the restoration and redemption of an individual, which in fact does often occur, or not maybe not often, but sometimes occur. So the thought is that the, even just this hope for restoration honors the sanctity of life more than the death penalty. Like to restore and redeem a life honors the sanctity of life more than just to take it away. But the death penalty is so final. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah. I mean, what do you do with someone who becomes a Christian on death row or when you take a life before they become a Christian and yet you give up redemptive hope? Mm -hmm. And and again, so you have the you have those who have come to Christ and now you're dealing with taking life of a Christian and also the potential of others to come to Christ on death row if not executed. One person I read put it this way. They said, if God is restoring and redeeming people on death row, which he is then executing the person is possibly undoing the powerful work of God in a person's life or the potential work God might do. Interesting. And that's true of the Glossop case, for example, if you followed that. He is a very committed Christ follower. Um, and I guess maybe here I'll, I'll play a little bit of my hand about where I stand on capital punishment or some of my thinking. I have been conflicted about it my entire life um, because the system can get it wrong. And it has gotten it wrong. Because you might be thwarting the redemptive work of God in a life. Because I'm not sure the fulfillment of the law through Jesus still demands it. Yet I also, here's let me get all my conflict out, mm -hmm. have fully embraced the sanctity of human life. And I have fully embraced the importance of having deterrence in society against crime. I believe that. And particularly the ultimate crime, which is murder. And I have fully embraced the teaching of the New Testament that the state does have authority uh, given to it by God for social order. So here's kind of where I land. Um, I could never be the one, say on a jury, who set that sentence. I could never be the one to flip the switch. I'm just too keenly aware of the sin in my life, how much I stand under the death penalty and accept for Christ should receive it as well. So a convicted, unrepentant murderer who would clearly kill again, 
who a court of law has found unambiguously guilty, they've even confessed, and the state has mandated execution, I'm not going to protest. I'll grieve, but I get it. But that's not the norm. And until there is 100% confidence in the system, or at least 100% confidence in that particular case, I'll have to protest. I can't support it. So I don't know whether that puts me in a soft support camp or a soft opposition camp. <laughs> it, it, it just shows how genuinely conflicted I am. And, and, I, and I hope all Christians are to a degree because you're talking about the taking of a human life. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing more serious. There's, there's no decision greater. Can I envision scenarios where it's mandated, called for, under the state's authority? All the, Like I said, yes, I can. But I also am deeply troubled by a deeply flawed system. And, um, and there would have to be an awful lot in place before I think that you reach that point where you say, okay, we, we, need, we, need to, we need to put this person in a chair and strap them down and run electricity through their system until they're dead. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not saying there, there's no scenario for that. Or biblical justification. I'm just saying. I mean, we're on we're on because of the sanctity of human life. We are on very hollowed ground here, and must walk very, very carefully. Mm. Well, I appreciate you wrestling through this with us. I think you gave a you gave language to what a lot of us are struggling with, but also. I don't know, important things to consider. Like that we, if we're going to be ambiguous, it's because of where we, how we interpret scripture and where we see, you know, God's justice and his mercy. And uh, and as you pointed, where we even acknowledge the sin in our own lives. And I mean, I, I love the idea of landing with the hope of redemption, but also, yeah, I mean, it all comes down to the sanctity of life. So I don't know. I, yeah, this wasn't an easy conversation. It doesn't have any easy answers, um, but I do appreciate you kind of walking us through this and giving us some things to think about. So, yeah. Well, I think the headline, truly, the tr- headline is that I, I would hope all Christians could agree on. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we need, we need uh, some real careful reform in our judicial system when it comes to capital punishment and the death penalty. I mean, it's a mess. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know of any Christian ethicist that doesn't say it's just a mess. And, and, and because it's a mess, um, we, should, we should walk very carefully, very slowly, um, with all things related to the death penalty. Agreed. Well, I'm not going to promise that you're, you can now get off the hot seat. I'm sure, I don't know what we're going to talk about next week, but I'm sure you'll be right back on it again. So don't get too comfortable this week. (laughs) Um, but again, thanks Jim. Thank you guys for listening. Um, we'll see you next week.